Well, it's the kind of scenario I think people are wondering, could this happen in the federal election campaign? A conservative party trailing in the polls to an established liberal incumbent, liberal government that's riding high in the polls, patting itself on the back for its pandemic response, looks set to cruise to re-election, only to come out on the losing end. Could that happen on September 20th? I don't know, maybe. But I do know that it did happen last night in Nova Scotia. Uh, defying the polls, defying expectations, the uh, Nova Scotia progressive conservatives unseated the liberals after eight years. 31 seats uh, as it stands for the PC, 17 for the liberals. Although I would say the, the popular vote is actually pretty close. Uh, but the PCs did get more votes and clearly got enough seats to form a majority government. So it's, I don't know what it necessarily portends for the federal election, but I mean, Atlantic Canada is obviously an important battleground. The Liberals have invested a, a lot in a lot of effort, spent a lot of money in Atlantic Canada. So maybe they should be a little nervous uh, about what happened in Nova Scotia. And, you know, the idea that the Conservatives can't win in Canada. Well, I tell you what, take a look at the map of provincial governments. There was a lot of blue across the country. Conservative right of center governments pretty much everywhere except BC and Newfoundland and Labrador. So how big of a, a political earthquake is this? How nervous uh, should the federal liberals be about what happened to their Nova Scotia cousins? Joining us uh, for some thoughts, very pleased to welcome to the program here this morning, Tim Powers, uh, vice chairman of uh, Summa Strategies uh, and East Coaster himself. Tim, great to have you with us here this morning. Welcome to the program. Uh, Rob, it's great. Uh, this is like a dream coming true. You're going to have a Newfoundlander and Labradorian explain Nova Scotia. <laughs> I mean, we've been trying to tell them for years we know what's going on in their province. Yeah, exactly. So now I get to do that exactly. without burdens. <laughs> That's good. We appreciate that. Uh, I mean, first of all, were you surprised by what happened last night? You just your, your kind of reaction as you were watching it all come in. Um, so I had talked to a colleague in one of the TV networks who had told me uh, early Monday morning that they were sensing that Houston uh, could get a minority government. So I'd heard something was coming. They didn't say majority. They'd seen a lot of data. A lot of the polling over the last week was moving the PC's way in Nova Scotia. So when they got a majority, yes, I was surprised. Not surprised that he won in the end. But, you know, as you as your introduction properly said, if you'd asked any Buddy in May uh, or June, if the PCs had a chance there, they would have sh shook their head and said no. Yeah. And look, obviously, there were some specific issues that came up, revelations uh, about the previous premier and some previous impaired driving convictions. There was a female liberal candidate who was turfed. Yeah. It was you know, pushed aside because, oh, my goodness, she'd taken some boudoir pictures uh, back in the day. So some weird things came up, obviously, and, and that obviously impacted the campaign. But, you know, it's, it's just when you look at the bigger picture, Tim, here we had what seemed like a fairly established liberal government. They, they seemed to... With their, with their pandemic response, have been very mm -hmm. competent. Uh, we've seen other provincial elections in the pandemic that seem to imply an incumbent advantage. So what what went wrong for them? Well, I, I, yeah, I guess the early reaction to that, and I'm sure there'll be great detailed analysis done by academics over the next year or two, but the, the quick short analysis is this. So Rankin, the, the former, well, I guess he's still premier, the departing premier, um, just did not have a good campaign. It started with 
early, a little earlier with those DUI incidents, though I think people were prepared to look past that, particularly in that region um, where I'm from, and that he's not the first politician, nor will be he be the last to talk about having dealt with that. The boudoir, the management of Robin Ingraham, that was her name. She was the uh, the person who was uh, was selling the boudoir uh, photos prior to becoming a liberal candidate. Uh, they screwed that up royally, and it kind of cut into their brand as being an open and modern party when they couldn't recognize the right of uh, anybody, but particularly a smart female business owner to try and make a living in the pandemic by doing something that was entirely legal. And then they they just seemed to get lost during the campaign, not talking about things that were affecting Nova Scotians to the degree that healthcare was. And Houston had a laser focus on healthcare. I would just say this: I was back guest hosting VOCM in in Newfoundland last week, the last two weeks, and similar challenges there. And the bulk of calls that I got were about healthcare, doctor shortages, wait lines, and the like. We have an older population. They have an older population. Tim Houston seemed to figure that out as a key issue, and uh, Ian Rankin didn't. Very interesting. So, and the one, um, and, and, and yes. I should add Go this, ahead. Rob, and and to help, what helped um, Mr. Houston was. In the last 10 days, there was a story in Nova Scotia, you've probably heard of it nationally or seen some images of it nationally, about a gentleman in uh, in uh, rural Nova Scotia who had called for an ambulance because his hip was broken and he wasn't able to get any. He was lying in his driveway for something like five to seven hours. So not fortuitous for the gentleman lying in the driveway, but fortuitous for Tim Houston being able to make the point that the healthcare system was a mess and that was going to be his focus. Now, whether he can do that or not, to be seen, but certainly that appeared to be a very potent, deliberate, focused message that helped him. Okay, so the takeaway here, I think we can say campaigns matter. I think the ability to zero in on issues that that matter to people, that can go a long way. Uh, That there is perhaps some, I don't know if it's volatility, but at least an, uh, an openness to change, a willingness to consider change. So to what extent do you think some of these these uh, undercurrents might be of benefit to to the federal conservatives and Aaron O'Toole? Well, let's start with a couple of the differences first, and then we'll get to what could benefit Mr. O'Toole. Um, So Mr. Houston ran separate and apart from the the federal conservative party. He looked to distance himself um, because in Atlantic Canada, uh, as your listeners probably know, there's still some discomfort with... Stephen Harper, though he's not been on a ballot for six years, but the Liberals have done a good job of branding the Conservative Party as still being Stephen Harper's party. Mr. Houston's also more of a traditional progressive conservative premier. Part of his Health Canada health um, promise was he's going to spend nearly $450 million to fix the system. So that's the difference, though. But where there is some common ground is, is in this. It, it looked like um, Ian Rankin was being opportune. People perhaps didn't like that to the degree that uh, that uh, that Mr. Rankin would have uh, preferred them to, and Mr. Houston took advantage of that. Uh, Mr. Rankin very aligned with Justin Trudeau. They talk about a Trudeau halo effect in Atlantic Canada, where because the Liberals are so popular there federally, if he lays his hand on an Atlantic Premier, sometimes that's good for five or ten points. There's actually data from 2015 that showed. 
Stephen McNeil was helped immeasurably by Justin Trudeau. So is Justin Trudeau's halo going? Uh, and I guess the other thing that could be helpful for Mr. O'Toole, because this certainly been his campaign in the, the last few days, if you talk about immediate pocketbook issues or issues of great concern to people that they can relate to their pocketbook or the service provision that they're getting, um, then that could benefit you nationally. And certainly Mr. Houston did that. Yeah, very interesting. And I mean, it does speak, I think you, you kind of helped answer the question because it comes up a lot. And I hear from, from folks out here and say, you know, that the, the rest of the country is just going to vote liberal, that, that conservatives don't really have a chance in this country. And I mean, you know, as I alluded to earlier, you look at the map, you, you look at provincial governments, it's very blue right across the country. So clearly Canadians are, are open to voting conservative or open to having conservative governments. And most Canadians have a conservative or a right of center government provincially. So how do federal conservatives tap into that? Well, I, I think it's also showing a bit more of a human connection to them. And Aaron O'Toole, who has roots in Atlantic Canada, he's married to a Nova Scotian. He went to school at Dalhousie. He flew out of Shearwater Base. Maybe he's got to tap into a little bit of that, making people comfortable with him a bit more than they are. Um, all polling that I've seen, including from our firm, Abacus Data, shows Mr. O'Toole is the least popular among the federal leaders. He has the most significant negative score, whereas Mr. Singh has the most uh, most positive score. So he's got to tap into that a little bit because the kind of rock rib conservatism that you like in Alberta um, is not as popular perhaps in parts of Ontario, Quebec, and Atlantic Canada. But you, as Stephen Harper did, you can win those people over if you show compassion both in terms of your performance and policy in terms of its relevance so o'toole has some policy has some things that will resonate all across the country it's also how he performs well, we'll see how this all plays out on the campaign trail. I mean, it's it's certainly not uh, a statement here that the liberals are going to lose this election, but maybe a, yeah. just a, a reminder that they could, right? I mean, that that anything can happen. Oh, yeah, this isn't done. Campaign. This, yeah, yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, Rob. It's not done. Uh, I mean, we're only three days in. It's far from yeah, done. Exactly. But you don't just show up and win. And if there's a lesson for Justin Trudeau and his team, it's that. Um, now, Atlantic Canada, I think the federal liberals will still do pretty well there. Let's not forget that in Atlantic Canada, and the liberals were showing when they fell to third in 2011, they still won the most seats in Atlantic Canada, with perhaps the exception of Mr. Mulroney. Rooney's win in 1984, uh, when you and I, of course, were just, you know, in diapers and on uh, in, a, in our right. teeter-totters, um, the, the Liberals have dominated that region politically. There's no reason to think what happened in Nova Scotia last night yet is going to change the dominance in that region. Does it have an effect elsewhere? TBC, to be confirmed. Indeed. We'll leave it on that note. Tim, always great chat, and thanks so much for making some time for us here this morning. Take care, Rob. Bye. All the best. You as well. Uh, there you go. That's uh, Tim Powers, uh, veteran conservative strategist, uh, vice chairman of uh, Summer Strategies. So his thoughts on what happened in Nova Scotia, why it happened there, and what it could mean for the uh, federal election. So, that, yeah, that's the thing. Look, there's some very specific circumstances and issues that came up, as you would expect in a provincial election campaign. But, you know, just the idea that voters are, are open to change. 
or that, that a government that was seen to have been very competent in responding to the pandemic, that it's not enough to just ride those coattails. Right. People are forward looking and you know, people do have other concerns. And if you can tap into that, you can have some electoral success. It is an interesting point about federal versus provincial conservatives that when you're the leader of a federal conservative party, you've only got one leader and, and one set of policies to sell to Canadians. Maybe part of the reason why provincially conservatives have some success is because you can tailor it. You know, Jason Kenney is a very different politician from Brian Pallister. And obviously, Brian Pallister is very different uh, from, from Doug Ford. And, you know, the conservative premiers we see in Atlantic Canada are, are different as well. 